Lord, preserve and protect your church. Our frailty will fail without your mercy. So keep us, keep us from all distraction and lead us to ever growing salvation in Christ. And now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good evening, brothers and sisters. So if you missed the town hall last week, um, there's a lot, there's a few updates. Hopefully you got an email. If you didn't, let me know because we need to fix that. Um, but the most prevalent I want to say now is that um, the church wants to, like almost nobody objected to this. Like I don't think actually anybody did. If they, they did, they didn't raise their voice. And no one's replied in the email that they reject. So the plan is that our church is beginning at 3.30 in the future. 3.30. It's an hour and a half forward. I propose like a small move forward. And then they're like, no, let's be done before it's dark. Let's eat dinner. Like, let's have it be dinner time when we're done. So we're moving forward to 3.30 on October the 9th. So that's like, here's a really quirky, stupid way to remember this. 10, 9, it's October 9th, right? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, countdown. So 10, 9, all the way down to 3.30. Okay, there you go. That's It's probably so dumb you'll remember it. Uh, 10, 9 is the start time. Uh, is the day we go to 3.30. Um, there's a lot of reasons, but one is um, also, it just doesn't make sense to be here and leading worship while the Bible College is leading worship at the exact same time. So um, we have a dozen in the back that would be happier about that. And um, yeah, and then I'm also going to go to bed at a reasonable time so I can get up Monday morning. It's going to be great. (laughs) Anyways, um, just that's an update if you didn't hear it. Um, There we go. Tonight, we're in Chronicles, First Chronicles. I also have a whiteboard. Never have a whiteboard. Not very often. About once a year, this thing comes out. So here it is. It's here. Um, and we're going to be in First Chronicles, so we'll be in chapter 1. Yes, I'm aware of what chapter 1 is. And also, um, I meant to have a big heap of snow chains here, and I forgot. In all my rush to set up music and stuff, I, I totally forgot to have a big, heavy weight of chains. And it would have made a great example for you guys of the weight and the strength and the endurance of chains. And I was going to drop them right on this podium. And you all would have heard the crash and the clatter. And we all would have known. I'm describing it now so that you can experience what we're not experiencing. Um, you all would have known the strength of chains, how strong a chain can be. Even if, you know, you got these little pieces of metal, right? These little rings of metal. They're not really significant by their own. But as they link together, you create a chain and the train gets strength. I bring this up, a strong chain. Because St. Jerome, uh, he, you guys may know, he was, he translated the Bible from its original language is to Latin for the Western world. This is like way back in the 4th century. And he, um, what, when he was translating, he gave titles. He had to come up with titles for all the books. And the title he gave to First Chronicles, I think this is cool, and I wish it just said this right here in my Bible, a chronicle of the whole divine history. So what are we going to hear about in Chronicles? <laughs> it's the chronicle of the whole divine history. And I will propose that it's not just the past history, but the whole divine history of even things yet to come. Our lives here, we are like chains. We're like links in a chain. Our lives link to one another. And we're stronger for that. We must understand that we are not individual, isolated pieces, but we form a chain that goes from us to our brothers and sisters in the history of the church And this whole chain is connected in Christ. But we also must be aware that the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. When you pull on a chain, the weakest link will show itself because it will give way. And so we're not just interested, and Chronicles is not just interested in making you a really strong link. That is important. But also that we ensure that our link to each other is strong. So that the chain of Christianity and of Christ's church can be strong. It has been 2,000 years strong. Nothing else in the world can boast of that. Um, But through the grace of God, we're still here. And we are going to be strong and we're going to keep going. Come whatever comes. 
So there's this um, theologian back in the um, Middle Ages named St. Simeon, the new theologian. And uh, Tyler pointed this out to me, so I'm giving him credit. But he had this really cool quote, and he says this. The saints, and when he says saints, he means all the believers. All the believers, whether dead or alive. The saints become linked with their predecessors through obedience to the divine commandments. And endowed with divine grace, become filled with the same light. So he's saying we become linked with the generations before us through obedience, and then God fills us with his grace and gives us the same light that they had. It's not that we get the same experience if we're willing to walk in obedience. He continues, and he says, In such a sequence, all of them together form a kind of golden chain, each saint being a separate link in this chain, joined to the first by faith right actions, and love. A chain which has its strength in God can hardly be broken. That's the idea of a chain. Now, we will see how all this works in the Chronicles. Um, Let's now talk about Chronicles. This is our last book in the Old Testament that we're studying, Chronicles. Um, I'll remind you that we went through the Old Testament in the Hebrew order, And the Hebrews put the uh, book of Chronicles at the very end. So in our Bibles, Chronicles is right after you have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, then you have 1st and 2nd Chronicles, okay? And if you've read the Bible straight through in a year, you'll have read through 1st and 2nd Kings and gone, that was exciting, and then it's also depressing, the kingdom fell and collapsed, and it's terrible. They're in exile. Um... And then you read Chronicles, and it starts off, this is long genealogy, you're like, this is really lame. You get to chapter 10, and you're like, oh, Saul, I know his name, and oh, David, I know his name. And you start reading Chronicles, and you begin to realize, this is the same story. What is going on? Why is it repeated? Do we have a repeat of the Samuel and King story in Chronicles? Well, at first it appears that way, but there's actually so much more going on in Chronicles than what initially meets the eye. First of all, Samuel and Kings deals with the political history of Israel. It's obsessed with the kings and who's doing what and the divide of the nation and all the good kings and the bad kings and all their policies and politics and the relations to the neighbors around them. It's a political emphasis. In Chronicles, we have a spiritual and a religious emphasis. The main character of the book of Chronicles is not a person. It's a place. It's the temple in Jerusalem. By far, the most impro- the most prominent figure in Chronicles is the temple. Um, Samuel Kings comes from a prophetic point of view. It's actually believed by some people that Jeremiah wrote Samuel and Kings, and that Jeremiah, the prophet of the time when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, is writing the history of the people to urge them to repent. And then he's recording their downfall because they didn't. But Chronicles is a priestly point of view. And it might have been written by Ezra, the guy who was doing all the teachings in Ezra and Nehemiah that we just saw the previous weeks. Ezra is coming at this with more of a, okay, now that the exiles happened and we've come back home from Babylon, let's talk about the right way to live. Let's talk about how to get us back to the heart of worship in our God. Samuel and Kings ended in exile. The end of the book had um, the last king taken in chains to, uh, to Babylon, and then he was at the end taken to the king's table, and it closes. And it's like, are we going to be saved or not? Chronicles ends with the Jews coming back from exile. It's a little bit different perspective. And finally, there's probably other differences too, but here's the ones I'm pointing out. Um, in Samuel and Kings, at the end, Babylon wins. Babylon has God's people in bondage, and it looks like God lost, and it's a terrible story. It's a tragedy. But in Chronicles, it ends with um, what we saw at the beginning of Ezra. It ends with King Cyrus's declaration that the Jews can go back to their home, and he's going to finance the rebuilding of their temple. What does that mean? It means that in Chronicles, Babylon is dead. Babylon has fallen, and the people get to come home. So Chronicles is retelling the story with a very intentional aim at moving the people of God forward. 
Because here's the primary question that the people must have been asking at this time. As they're coming back from Babylon, this great empire where all the hip culture is and all the good life exists, and they're coming back to this place where there's no city walls in Jerusalem, and they're a little remnant, and they're a little tiny people, and they're poor, and the land isn't doing well, and there's all these nations around them that want to swipe them out from the face of the earth, and they're struggling, and they must be wondering, are we going to make it? We're the small little remnant. We're coming back, but we don't know. Is God still with us? Is the promises of his kingdom that will never end going to come? Are we going to have a king again? Will we have a temple again? Lots of questions. And you remember this from last week, perhaps. If not, here you go. Um, in Nehemiah, it ended in chapter 13 with the Jews just falling apart. They were intermarrying with other people at the end of 13. And intermarriage was not because God is like, how dare you mix the races? Not at all. It was because the other cultures, think of this more of like enculturation. They're marrying other cultures. And what happens is you're, you're merging household gods together. And you're, you're diluting the faith that Israel had in Yahweh. This was a big deal. You might remember Ezra made a big deal about this. Uh, and Nehemiah pulled out people's beards and hair because of this. This was a huge deal. Um, also, they're rejecting the Sabbath. They're letting foreign traders into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And that takes people away from the temple and from worship. And then that makes the Sabbath all about what can we get and what can we make money-wise. It's a marketing of God's worship day. And then they neglect worship. And we see that the priests aren't supported, so the Levites aren't even showing up anymore for their shifts at the temple. Nobody's at the temple worshiping. The sacrifices aren't being offered. No worship's happening. And worse of all, Nehemiah goes in the temple, goes, why is this place a ghost town? And he opens up one of the chambers of the temple where where, where tithes are stored for the priests, and instead he finds Tobiah. Remember Sambalot and his little sidekick, Tobiah? Yeah, if a fox goes on the wall, it will fall. That Tobiah was given a room by the high priest in the temple, and that's why there's no support for worship, because they were making side deals with the enemy. This is how Nehemiah ends, and now Chronicles is opening. And this is the question, will we make it? Because it looks bleak for those returning home from Babylon. So what Chronicles does... What makes it different than Kings is that Chronicles presents an ideal version of Israel's history. An ideal version. What I mean is David does not sleep with Bathsheba in Chronicles. David's sin is ignored. Saul does not marry multiple wives in Chronicles. His sins are ignored. And down the line, it's mostly emphasizing the good these kings did and the good that the other kings did in restoring the temple worship. What is this? Is this revisionist history? Oh, no, no, no. They're not, they don't deny that the sins happened. Chronicles is giving us a perspective on their history is as if, if you will, through the lens of justification. They're looking at the people of Israel just if they'd never sinned. And it's saying, look, this is what could be. This is how God sees us. Let's move forward. It's presenting an ideal history so that the people can be pushed toward glory. And so the question is, will we make it? And Chronicles is saying, yes, we'll make it. Because guess what? We've been in tight spots before. And here we are. So they're going to do just fine. Now, um, uh, Second Chronicle, or Chronicles being at the end of the Hebrew Bible, this is where this is all going to come in. I want us, I want to, since we're at the end of our Old Testament study, I want us to, um, give us the basic story so we can kind of fit this together and then where Chronicles fits into all this. So, um, but right before I get to this, um, if Chronicles, why is, why did they put, why did the Jews put Chronicles at the end of the Old Testament? And, and Genesis is the beginning. But why, why are these the bookends? Um, well, for one, it's, it's launching us toward glory. It's saying, Hey, we know there's a future. There's something better. Let's, let's retell our history as if it's the glorious future to come. That, that's what we're seeing. Um, but then Chronicles brings this nice close because Genesis has a bunch of genealogies in the book. Chronicles, uh, you have it open in front of you. Chapter one is genealogies. Chapter two is genealogies. Chapter three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are all genealogies. 
<laughs> at least Genesis had the mercy of sprinkling them throughout interesting stories. But Chronicles is just like, let's get this done with. Boom. Nine chapters. This is immense. And this is really important. If they're front-loading a story, this is a terrible hook for modern audiences. If you're front-loading the story with genealogies, there is a significant reason for this. Um, we'll look at that. But what we see is the biblical, the Hebrew canon is opening with genealogies and it's closing with genealogies. We see um, that land and worship are both very important in both books. In uh, Genesis, it opens with Eden as this temple where humanity worships God and celebrates him in the creation. Uh, in Chronicles, we have the rebuilding of the temple and the worship there. And both of them are about land. Um, Genesis talks about the land 311 times. And then Chronicles talks about the land, because here the Jews have returned to the land, and there's other things that it says about the land, but there's an emphasis on land and worship. Um, Genesis has an exile. The book of Genesis ends with Israel exiled in Egypt, hoping to get out one day. Joseph goes, one day God will visit you, and you'll take my bones up into the promised land. Um, but Chronicles ends with people returning from exile in Babylon. Genesis has Abraham leaving Babylon to go to the promised land, and Chronicles has God's people leaving Babylon to go to the promised land. And then last, a really cool pointer to show you that this is by design, that the Jews arranged it this way by design. Um, the end of Genesis and the end of Chronicles uses the same Hebrew words in the key, the key words in the text. Here's how Genesis 50 verse 25 ends. Joseph said, uh, Jacob, no, Joseph, Joseph says, is it Jacob? Oh, I don't remember now. All those J's. Um, the one who's dying at the end of Genesis says, <laughs> and I'm the Genesis teacher at Bible college. Um, he says, God will surely visit you. That word visit is pakad. God will surely pakad you. And he shall carry up, or you shall carry up, Allah, my bones from here. God will visit pakad, you'll carry up my bones, Allah. Uh, the end of Chronicles, we're here, so you can go over to if you want. It's not that far. It's just to your right. Second Chronicles 36. Um, Second Chronicles 36. We read this. 36 verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me. That's the word, pakad. So Joseph, or Jacob, forgive me, he pakad them to take up his bones. Cyrus, Jacob, someone fact check that? Okay. Oh, Joseph, okay. Yeah, um, okay. And so now Cyrus is doing the same thing. He's, he's giving him a charge. Pakad. I charge, he, the Lord charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you and all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. That's Allah. So in Genesis, he said, take up my bones with you. And Osiris is saying, take, uh, let them go up to the temple. So these two key words are repeated. And that, that's, that's too significant. That seems too similar to be an accident. And so the Jews have this concept of Genesis opening the story, Corinthians, Chronicles, excuse me, um, closing the story. So now, uh, first, here's the entire Bible in five steps. <laughs> Entire Bible in five steps. We did this, um, last time we did this was in Isaiah, so it's time for a review. Um, so we begin in the beginning with creation. It starts off really nice. And it would have continued on like this forever in this beautiful Edenic land where God and man live together. Heaven and earth are one. But, unfortunately, Genesis 3 happens and we rebel against God. And so now our story takes this downward turn. Now, this is like your classic drama where you have um, fall, uh, rising action, climax, falling action. But instead of making that classic pyramid, we're inverting it because the biblical story is not exciting rising action. It's depressing rising action. It's really terrible what's happening in the earth. Cain kills Abel, and then uh, Abel has multiple, or uh, Cain has multiple wives. One of his descendants kills someone just for insulting him. And then there's this weird marriage thing, the angels of God and the daughters of men. There's giants on the land. And then 
it just gets worse and worse, right? Then the people of God are called out to be unique, but then they become just like every other pagan nation on earth to the point that they're offering their children to the god Molech in the valley uh, under Jerusalem. Uh, it's really terrible. And so the entire Old Testament from Genesis 3 on, this is all the Old Testament. It goes all the way down to the bottom when Israel is in exile. They're coming back from the land. We're like, uh, we don't know what's going on. And then Jesus comes, Acts 3, Jesus comes, and this is the lowest part of the story. Not his coming, but when the, when the creation kills the creator, that is the lowest act that the creation can commit. The story has gone so decreated that the creator himself is now killed. So we are at the very lowest point of the story when Christ is buried. And then he's raised. And that sharp little point at the bottom of our V turns dramatically. The entire narrative of history turns in a moment when Christ comes out of the tomb. And when he says Mary and she turns to hear, to see him call her, it's as if Mary is representing the turn of history as she turns around to hear his voice. It all changes. He's raised in a garden, John shows, because now the garden lost is the garden regained in this moment, in this turn. And so now our story goes upward in Act 4. And now what has been decreated is being recreated through God's people, the church. And this is why we're given language about bearing fruit. Jesus says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Paul says, bear the fruits of the Spirit. It's because we are bringing the best of creation out of creation. That's what we're doing now. This is why the Bible calls us to live a certain way. And this all climaxes one day at the very top. We come back. We come back to the Garden of Eden as Revelation 21 and 22 shows. It borrows all the imagery from the Garden of Eden and replicates it in there in Revelation. And we see the new heaven and the new earth. We have a new creation. Christ comes. He reigns. We reign with him. And we all live happily ever after. There's a lot more to say of what will happen there, but that's enough for now. Um, so we come back full circle, and actually not just full circle, but better. We come back to what God had originally attend- intended with humanity fully matured in Christ. Because Adam and Eve were not quite fully matured in Christ at that time yet. That's, that's, our, that's our biblical story in a few minutes. Um, now, what I want to do is I want to overlay our Old Testament narrative on top of this because... Um, it's actually kind of cool how, and this will show you what Chronicles is doing. It's kind of cool how it just mirrors the story. Granted, um, granted, Christ doesn't come in the Old Testament. I understand that. And, uh, the new heaven and new earth don't come in the Old Testament. I understand that. But what you're gonna have to see is I'm gonna use a different color to show you what's going on. And you'll see that there's anticipation in the Old Testament that mirrors the story of the Bible. So, here's what we did. We began with Genesis 1 and 2. Well, that was actually a couple messages. Genesis 1 and 2. Okay? So we had um, we had that story going. And then, quickly it turns. So this is, no, this is all review for you, right? Then we have Genesis 3. And uh, this decreation, right? The story goes downhill. And this is where um, the Jews ordered their Bible like this. You have Genesis through Deuteronomy, just like our Bible. That's good enough. And then um, you have, um, after that, you you actually, you go to Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Notice Ruth isn't in there. Okay? So we have Josh, Judges, um, and then Samuel and Kings is actually one book. It's just, um, it comes up in four in our Bibles because when they wrote this out in Greek, it took multiple scrolls to fill. But this is one work. Probably Jeremiah wrote this. So here we have this simple story. We have a simple story of the creation of the world to the loss of the kingdom when Israel goes into exile, when Babylon conquers them. So that's our, this is our um, decreation story. So when they're in exile, this is the lowest part. The Babylonian exile is the lowest part of the story. The Old Testament, this is the death of Israel. And they're hoping for a resurrection. They're hoping to come back to life. Um, so this third act, this was the bulk of a lot of what we looked at. Um, well, a lot of the Old Testament. Um, this is where you have the prophets. So the prophets are down here. And this is actually very appropriate, isn't it? Because the prophets, 
The prophets anticipate Christ. A lot of their messages, yep, we're dead, but guess what? We will rise again. They don't have the name Christ yet, but they anticipate that there will be a great resurrection. Think Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones. This is Israel, buried and dead. But what happens is the Ruach of God, the breath of God comes and resurrects the bones and they are a new man. This is what God will do with Israel. Um, This is what God has done with Christ. He has redeemed us through death and resurrection. So we had the prophets. We had... um, um, we had the Psalms, the, the Jews put Psalms, Job, uh, Proverbs, and Job. Proverbs and Job. So awkward and silent in your writing. <laughs> those are called the Book of Truth, those three. We did those in order. We did the Psalms during COVID. Flashback trauma, sorry. Um, <laughs> did the Psalms during COVID. And um, the Proverbs right after that, as we were regathering once again in the sanctuary, um, we were in Proverbs, and then what we did is we inserted, we went out of order in one spot. We inserted Ecclesiastes because it's a book of wisdom, and I wanted to do Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And we looked at the College of Christ. Proverbs was our schooling under Lady Wisdom, and then Ecclesiastes was the professor where we learned to question everything. <laughs> and then Job was the sage who said, you think school teaches you about life? Uh-uh. <laughs> no, let me tell you about life. Um, and then... That leads you to what the Jews call the scrolls. There are five books that are meant to be read during certain festivals. This is super recent now. This is all within this calendar year, so this should just be jogging your memory. But you have um, Song of Songs. The song? You remember? That was just right after Easter. The Sunday after Easter, we started Song of Solomon. Uh, you have the song. You have Ruth, which um, we just read. We just read Ruth on Pentecost. And you guys then shared your favorite scriptures. So just trying to register, like you're with me, like you remember this. Um, then we had Lamentations. Um, that's, again, about the fall of Jerusalem. This was um, read when Israel remembered the fall of Jerusalem, which was on the 9th of Av every year. And then um, after Lamentations is Ecclesiastes. Um, we did that out of order. I'm sorry, this is getting low for those of you who can't see, but you can hear me. And then lastly, Esther finishes the scrolls. These are the scrolls that are read at festivals. And Esther, um, Brittany, you may remember, did that in a night, and she gave us a, um, a narrative um, told from the point of view of one of Esther's handmaids. A bunch of them. Oh, yeah, diff- that's right, different points of view. Yeah, I remember the gum-smacking one. That was- <laughs> uh, yes, okay. Okay, so what is all this doing? These guys are all giving um, commentary. They're looking backward at Israel's history, and they're all commenting on it. They're saying, this is why we're in exile. You guys sinned. You messed up. This is what happened. So they're looking backward on the story and saying, yep, we blew it. But at the same time, they're looking forward in the story and saying, but God hasn't abandoned us. He has a plan for us, and all this is going somewhere. So all these books in the middle of the Hebrew canon, that's what they're doing. A commentary and expectation, anticipation. And then you get to, now this is super recent. I think everyone in the room has been here for parts of this. Um, The recreation in Israel's phase. Then you have the books Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So Daniel, and then Ezra. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are one work in Hebrew. So um, those are the books of the recreation. Why? These are the books where Israel's released from Babylon. And the instruction of these books are how do we live coming back to the land. And that leaves us with the final book of Chronicles. <laughs> and this is what I really want you to see. Is that Chronicles serves the Old Testament in the same way Revelation serves the New Testament. It's telling us the story in an idealized form, and the aim of it is to say, this is our future glory. So we can do this, people. Let's get it done. Um, I want you guys to think about a trampoline. So trampolines enable us to jump higher. But now, if you just go gingerly on the trampoline and just kind of rock your knees a little bit, you're not going to get much lift, are you? In order to get that great lift, you have to 
compress. You have to go down into the trampoline, and then it will launch you upward. This is what Chronicles is trying to do. It's, it wants to take the people of God deep into their history so that then it can let go and spring them up into their glorious future. That's what we're after. That's what Chronicles is after. So it's, com- it's concerned with history. Uh, look, at, look at Chronicles 1 verse 1. I mean, it starts right off with a very historical figure. The first word of First Chronicles is Adam. We, we just went all the way to the beginning. And he's now going to trace it all the way to the present return from exile. Um, that's what chapter 9 is. Chapter 9 is the genealogies of those who return. He's concerned with history. Because the history takes them down so that then they can know how to be sprung forward. So eschatology is the second concern. I believe that Chronicles is a book that is concerned with the future. It's concerned with the future by telling the story of the past in such a way that it says, this is what God will make us, the kingdom without sin, the kingdom where there will be a new David ruling and building this beautiful temple and all the nations will come and worship and all will be good. This is what Chronicles wants us to see. So it's encouraging. Here's a quote um, from a really, this was a really cool quote um, that kind of changed my perspective on Chronicles. In a commentary reading, they said this, Chronicles indicates that the needed inspiration and hope will come from Israel's heritage, their past. That's where their hope's coming from. It discusses the best of the nation's past and thereby challenges each new generation to build on this strong foundation. So Chronicles says, hey, look, we have a great heritage and a great history. Let's not focus on the negatives. Let's focus on the good parts of it and build upon those. Let's keep going forward. So, the deep history, let's look look now. Uh, The deep history, it takes us deep through the genealogies. So here we go. 1 verse 1. We're going to read all the way through. Just kidding. I would not have been talking as long as I have already if it was the case. But you get the point here. It says in 1 verse 1, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog. And so then it starts to go through various parts of the family tree. Uh, this is great. So what we see in the first two chapters of this genealogy, I'm sorry, the first chapter of this genealogy is we are presented with the seed. The seed is planted. You might, um, our translations kind of miss this, but in Genesis, it's emphasized that the offspring of the patriarchs are seed. They're not offspring. That's a nice translation for modern people. They're seed. Because the idea is that they are going to grow into something and that they will be in the land planted and grow. Chapter 1 is telling us a story about the seed that was planted in the ground. And guess what? God waters the seed and the seed grows. So chapters 2 through 8 are all showing us with the genealogy where the seed becomes a tree. So we got branches of different family lines. Like, for example, it talks about Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And it goes to the genealogies of the 12 sons of Jacob. So we have the trunk. We have the branches. At chapter 6 of the genealogy, by the way, really emphasizes, rather um, largely compared to the rest, it emphasizes the genealogy of the Levites. Why? You know now, I told you, you should be able to pass this test. Chronicles is concerned with worship in the temple. So the Levites become a very, very important tribe for the future of Israel's growth. Um, And then in chapter 9, we read this. Chapter 9, verse 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. So you can go read that somewhere else, he says. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Here we have this beautiful story in the genealogies of the seed that was planted, grew into a tree, had branches. And now we read that this tree was cut down. It was chopped. There's nothing left but a stump. That's what Isaiah chapter 6 says. The holy seed is a stump. But then Isaiah says, there will be a shoot that arises from the stump of Jesse. A Davidic king will come, and this chopped down tree will grow again. 
chapter 9, we don't see that yet. We just see that these are the people who come back from Babylon. The tree has been cut down. And that's why they're asking the question, will we make it? We are a far cry from what we once were. How do we go forward? Okay. So now chapter 10 starts like this. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was wounded by the archers. This, by the way, is the end of 1 Samuel. This is what you see at the very end of 1 Samuel. So then Saul said the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died. Thus Saul died. He and his three sons and his son's house died together. That's tragic. This is the first king of Israel. What an end. Uh, This is meant to make you feel really sad. Like this is the worst possible way for the first king of Israel to go. Suicide. In battle. He lost. He could not lead the people to victory like God promised because Saul had some character flaws. And when all the men, verse 7, of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled, the armies now fled, and Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. This is a bleak, 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 bleak picture. The king has committed suicide. His sons have committed, they're they're dead in battle. There's no heir to the throne. The army sees this. They abandon ship. They go running for the hills. And then it says the people in the cities of Israel abandon their cities because the Philistines are sweeping in like an unstoppable flood. And they're just taking the kingdom at freedom. No one's there to lead them or resist what's going on. So Chronicles begins after the genealogies with this really bleak story of Saul to say this. Yeah, we've been in bleak spots before. This is really bad. The way they're describing the story, this is really bad. And Chronicles is saying, yeah, our situation is not actually any worse than theirs was. Saul, Saul's death is being used here to mirror or to typify Israel's death when the kingdom fell to the Babylonians. This is a picture of the exile. And that's important to see because of how quickly the author goes from Saul, just right here, here's his death, then quickly he goes right to David. And David is majestic from the moment we see him. No struggle for David to become king, just majestic from the moment we see him. So in chapter 11, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh, In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel, all the elders came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. It was bleak when Saul died. But right away, David shows up. He turns the kingdom around. Right away, in verse 4, David takes Jerusalem. Now they have a capital. Things are happening. And then the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12 talk about David's mighty men. He had this the Navy SEAL guys are on his side. He had an awesome team of special forces. And right away, we see in a moment, the kingdom goes from absolute death and it turns because David has come. This is Israel's resurrection. And the chronicler, possibly Ezra, is wanting them to see, look, we've been there. And God brought a deliverer. So, my people, don't keep asking and saying, we can't do it. It'll never happen. We're too small. We're too weak. The chronicler is saying, no, God will raise up a David who will lead us into victory. So, we have Christ, the son of David. By the way, Genesis, um, I mean, Chronicles, um, has the genealogies and it's asking this question, who's going to lead us? Is David going to come lead us? So then Matthew opens with 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is Genesis doing? And then it goes into this genealogy for like half of chapter 1. Genesis is mimicking chronicles to say, yes, that Davidic king has come. And we are okay. And we are going forward. So this is the trampoline effect. Saul takes them deep. The genealogies in Saul take them deep. But then David comes and saying, this is how we can spring forward. This is what our future can look like. So it typifies Israel's resurrection. Um, Now for us, brothers and sisters, going back to this idea of the chain, Chronicles gives us this chain. It It links from Adam to David. And it's so wonderful how this genealogy just goes. And David's in the genealogy and his offspring. But then it gives us this narrative of David rescuing the kingdom that Saul wrecked. And it's as if to say, all of history is a footnote to David. All of history is a footnote to David. He comes on the scene and is like, none of it mattered because this matters now. And then with Genesis opening up with the genealogy, it's um, Matthew. Matthew opening up with the genealogy, it's as if it's the same thing. All of that was a footnote to Christ. So Matthew um, 1, oh, here we go. Um, so that golden chain that we see, we are linking our lives into it. And Chronicles wants to link our lives, the lives of God's people, through genealogy. Now, you and I might read, like, if you read this genealogy in chapters 1 through 9, go like, I don't know any of these people. I have no link to them. But wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. Matthew proves that we do. It says, here's the book of genealogy. It goes through many of these names. And then this is what it says at the end of Matthew's genealogy. This is Matthew 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, the exile, 14 generations. And from the exile to the Christ, 14 generations. What is Matthew doing? He says, I'm revealing to you the three-step scheme of history that leads us to Christ. We have uh, Abraham and David. This whole period up to David. Then we have this period from David to the exile. Then we have this period from the exile to Christ. Um, Now, the genealogy stops there with Christ. But guess what, brothers and sisters? It's still going. Because everyone who puts their faith in Christ, you are entered into the family, the household of God. Ephesians says that we're adopted as God's sons. Whoa. Put this together. Who's the son of God? Christ. We are adopted as sons of God. Christ is the begotten son of God. Same essence of the father. We are adopted. We get to participate in their glory, in their nature, without actually becoming them, of course, because we're creatures. Um, We get to become sons of God. That's brothers of Christ. He's the firstborn, meaning he has all the inheritance and he will share it with us. But we get to be brothers and sisters of Christ. This is radical stuff. So the genealogies still go. And that means if you're in Christ, you are linked to Christ in this great chain. And therefore you are linked to Adam at the beginning. But Adam is now a redeemed fella. When Christ is raised from the dead, um, there's some art, church artwork that shows him raising up a, 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 a Adam and Eve as well. Like they were redeemed because death will not hold humanity unless humanity wants to be held by it. That's what Christ does. So we're linked to him. Um, John chapter 1 verse 12 says this so clearly. All who did not receive Christ, no, all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are supernaturally brought into this great genealogy through Christ. So, we are linked to this story through Christ because we in Christ are what Chronicles was looking for. It was saying there's something new coming and we get to be living in the fulfillment and the excitement of that. So this is what it means to be linked in Christ. To be linked to Christ is to be linked in continuity. First, to be linked in Christ is to be linked in continuity. Think of a chain. You Each link is connected. It's a one continuous link. 
It does, if you break it, then the chain's broken. To be linked to Christ is to be linked to continuity, which means we are part of this family, this whole heritage from the beginning on. What God planned in Adam to make humanity as the image of God and to represent God to the creation, God is fulfilling in Christ and in us. We have this great continuity. So what we do, brothers and sisters, is we want to remember the past. And Chronicles honors that and says, look, let's not ignore our heritage and the good things that came before it. We remember our past. The church just gets in trouble when it surrenders to the past. When it says, oh, the past is the only way to do things. And then you're living in the past. And then you're just living and the world's moving on. And you're just, you're just out of touch. We want to remember the past, but not surrender to the past. We are to walk with one hand holding the past and the other hand holding the future. That's how you make this chain. We're holding the hands of the past and the future all at once. And that what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we, in the present, we are responsible for taking our faith and faithfully passing it down to the future generations. And if we fail our part, then the continuity of the chain is broken. So every generation serves an incredibly important role in the church. This is also why, though, we need the past, as Chronicles is saying, because we can't just make up the faith as we go. We can't just say, well, times have changed, so we're going to change. We adapt, but we do not change our faith, lest we break the chain and say, we're starting on new chain. Well, that chain brothers and sisters, is not in continuity with Christ. So here's our problems, I I would say largely in our culture. We have amnesia. We want to burn the past. We were dumb back then. We didn't believe in these wonderful things science has showed us. There are some wonderful things science has showed us. But that doesn't mean people back then were dumb. That's called chronological snobbery. It's one of my favorite phrases from C.S. Lewis. And it's just this idea that we know so much better than everyone else. Well, when the church adopts this posture, we begin to tweak our faith, and we begin to tweak how God has asked us to love him, follow him, worship him. We begin to tweak what the Bible means, and we get messed up. We are not supposed to create from scratch. We're supposed to receive Christ, and pass Christ down. That's amnesia. It's burning the past in favor of novelty. Let's just have new stuff all the time. Um, Nostalgia is also a danger. Nostalgia is yearning for the past and saying, it was so much better then, and then getting stuck in the past. We don't want nostalgia either. You don't glorify the past as if that's what we got to get back to. The past is to be learned from and then applied to our present context so we don't want amnesia we don't want nostalgia what we want is and i had to be clever because i'm a preacher and that's what they do <laughs> we want sophia it's wisdom just it rhymes with the others <laughs> thank you thank you we want sophia we want wisdom we want to learn from the past and actually in proverbs chapter 8 wisdom is presented as being with god at the beginning of creation making all things That's because wisdom understands the deep past. Wisdom understands how we live and operate in a functional way. Wisdom will show us. So that's what wisdom teaches us. Wisdom says, hey, learn from the past because it will teach you how to live in the present so we can get to the future. Frederica Matthews Green sums up what I just said like this. We modern Christians are victims of amnesia. We have forgotten the powerful tale of where we came from and this wisdom that our older sisters and brothers knew. So um, part of my job to you guys as a pastor has been to just gently show you guys some of the past of the church. And yes, we want to be faithful to that, but we also want to um, be faithful to the context we're given. And so, yeah, admit a lot of kicking and screaming last year. Um, a couple people specifically come to mind. It was like pulling teeth. But we did a couple weeks where we, we did two weeks where we looked at a saint from our history. And man, the opposition I got, I could not believe it. I, it took me back a little bit. But, um, um, everyone at the end of it settled down like, oh, that was actually really cool. <laughs> so, but that's, that's something we'll do, right? At the, um, right before Advent starts, we're gonna look at the life of a saint. 
um, just to remember some of the great heroes and stuff. Um, anyway, so submit a thing if you, I don't have them planned yet. So if you like, like, I really want to learn about this guy. Great. Submit it to me. The majority wins. Okay. Um, so to be linked to Christ is to be linked in continuity. That was the first way that we're put in this golden chain. The second, to be linked to Christ is to be linked in community. A chain also represents community because I can't be linked unless I'm with other people. I can't, like the, the Proverbs say, the fool isolates himself. I can't, I can't find out my place. I cannot pass, I cannot reach the past and the future if I'm by myself. Or here's another one. Um, there are a lot of churches that are full of people, but they're full of people the exact same age. And we need our 90-year-old grandmothers and our 7-year-old sassy and wiggly kids in the same church. We need that diversity because we have multiple generations. And I'm not telling you guys you have to fix that because you represent that very well. And I, I'm saying I'm, I'm pleased. I'm happy. I do not want um, the more mature ones among us to be overrun by hundreds of Bible college students. I do not want um, a couple Bible college students to feel like they're threatening the territory of the more mature ones. We have to look at each other and say, we're in this great golden chain together. And so we have to get to know each other. We need to know each other's names. We need to um, eat together. We're going to do that in a few minutes. Um, few, that's an exaggeration. But. <laughs> individuality will not get you into this chain. So a tramp back to the trampoline. You can jump really high on a trampoline. You know how you can jump higher on a trampoline? It's when you have someone jumping next to you. Because then when you time your jumps right, they, they actually propel you with their weight. And that's what we need. That's what the church needs. That's what I believe Chronicles might be trying to propose too. Is hey, let us learn, let us join together, and we will propel ourselves forward. So, when we chain ourselves to Christ, brothers and sisters, yes, Paul said, I am a servant, or literally a slave of Christ. If we're willing to chain ourselves to him, then we will find that our lives become a link in what Jerome called the chronicle of the whole divine history. I get to be linked to that. That is cool. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Now and ever and unto ages of ages, amen.